morning we uh, continue our series in the beginning part of this book of Revelation, looking at these seven letters to the churches. Uh, Last week we looked at the vision of Jesus that John had in chapter 1, and and really all of these letters are on the basis of that vision. And so this morning we read this letter to the church in Ephesus, the first of these seven letters. As I read through uh, this letter, the thought struck me that it's hard to believe things in the right way. Uh, Politics is actually an example of this. You know, we may hold public policies for good reasons, but it seems like eventually our our beliefs become like bats that we use to beat the other party with. We um, begin to define ourselves in opposition to the other side, and then we demonize them so that even our highest aspirations for society are often twisted into a matrix of self ambition and lies and corruption. I heard a Democratic activist on NPR recently concede regarding Hillary's public image that she has an authenticity problem. That was humorous, but authenticity problems aren't limited to Hillary by any means. Donald Trump has perhaps an even greater authenticity problem. And of course, we all have our own authenticity problems that we struggle with every day. You know, we believe true and good things, but the quality of our living doesn't necessarily match the quality of our believing. This is true of Christians, but it's not limited to us. It's common to humanity. Sincerity, authenticity are hard to come by. Sin makes authenticity hard for all of us. The teaching of these verses in Revelation is that there are two ways of loving God. There's loving God with the mind, believing the right things, and there's loving him from the heart, which results in truly good living. The healthy Christian has strong love for God in both the heart and the mind, while the sick Christian has strong love for God, perhaps in one, but is weak or totally void uh, in the other. We need both rational and experiential. God created us for both. And church history proves that there's often tension on this point. So in some generations, the church has been caught up in bursts of religious zeal and enthusiasm. You might think of the Corinthian church in the New Testament. They were zealous for the Spirit. Or the first great awakening in the early 1700s in New England, there was this outpouring of of spiritual experience. But in other generations, uh, the church has perhaps overcorrected by stamping out experiential zeal or at least prioritizing doctrinal accuracy and exposition. So the great sociologist of religion, Max Weber, placed the religious life between the two poles of charisma on the one hand and routine on the other. The a zealous, uh, outpouring experience of the Spirit on the one hand, or the dogged institutionalization and creedal affirmation and everyday responsibilities on the other hand. The mature life of faith is lived between these two poles and not around either one of them. Mind and heart are both necessary ingredients to salvation. Belief alone is not enough. Even the demons believe and tremble. So there's a way of believing divine revelation that doesn't lead to eternal salvation. To become a Christian then, a person 
has to relate rightly to the Creator, both acknowledging in the mind that God exists, but also knowing in the heart that God is good, that He rewards those who seek Him, and then loving this kind of God. And then to be a Christian, to continue walking well as a believer, uh, these dynamics have to continue to grow, loving God with both the heart and the mind together. Learning the Bible and humbly assenting to all that we find there, but also yielding our affections to God and cultivating a Godward love. These two loves should be fused together, not separated. What God has joined together, we must not put asunder. As we read this letter to the Ephesians, we see Jesus calling them to correct this discrepancy in their church. Jesus' assessment of Ephesus includes three things, a positive, a negative, and a conditional. First of all, positively, Jesus says, you have rejected false teaching. Uh, And then secondly, negatively, Jesus says, you have abandoned your first love. And then third, conditionally, Jesus says, you must repent and listen and overcome. So first of all, the positive. Jesus says, you have rejected false teaching. So look again at verses 2 and 3, and then verse 6. Revelation 2.2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are uh, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then verse 6, Jesus says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, let me remind you just a little bit about the the history of this church in Ephesus. About, uh, About 40 years before Jesus sent this short letter to Ephesus, uh, Paul, who had been living and teaching in Ephesus for a couple years, called together the elders of the church in Ephesus. This is recorded in Acts chapter 20. And he gave them a final commission for their work as elders in this church. He said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things uh, in order to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So Paul says to them, false teaching is coming. It may be an inside job, so be on your guard. And then a few years after that meeting with the elders, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, not just to the elders, but to all the Christians there in Ephesus. And he reminded them of the good news that they had been separated from God. They were dead in their sins without hope in the world. And yet God, because of his kindness, through Jesus, uh, forgave them and reconciled them to God. So Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. In light of this gospel, let no one deceive you with empty words. And then he says, and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. He says, believe and live in a way consistent with the good news that Jesus died to reunite you to God. Don't give up the truth and also live as grateful, humble, rescued people. 
And then a few years after Paul sent that letter to the church as a whole, he sent another letter specifically to Timothy. Uh, Paul had sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus to lead that church. And in Paul's first letter to Timothy about how to lead there, he says, as I urged you, uh, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then Paul goes on to tell Timothy that he should be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Then in his second letter to Timothy, he follows up and says, remind the Ephesians of the gospel. And then he warns Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And now, about 30 years after Paul's letter to Timothy, the Apostle John is one of the leading elders in this church at Ephesus, and he's writing to them these words from Jesus, commending them for rejecting false teaching and holding to the good news of Jesus. So did you catch all that? This, this is a church that is a center of apostolic ministry and teaching. They have been led by Paul, and then by Paul's delegate, Timothy, and now by John, along with the other elders of the church. And the effect of this kind of good leadership in the church at Ephesus was that they knew good doctrine when they saw it, and they could sniff out the false stuff like bloodhounds. So that when these teachers came along, who were claiming to be apostles, but in reality were undermining the teaching of the gospel, uh, the people in the church at Ephesus kept on resisting every form of this teaching. This wasn't an isolated incident. They were constantly on guard, trying to protect what they knew to be true. And verse 6 says that they also hated the works of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a group there in Ephesus who were encouraging Christians to continue participating in worship of the pagan god Artemis, who had a temple there in Ephesus. And, uh, and permitted Christians as well to continue uh, participating in various forms of immorality. And so the Ephesian church resisted their permissiveness as well. The church in Ephesus was morally rigorous and biblically literate. And the call for Christ's covenant is to emulate Ephesus in loving God with the mind, restricting ourselves to believing only the things permitted us by God's word. So how do we reach that goal? Well, let me offer two suggestions. First, uh, cultivate a love for good doctrine. For yourself, cultivate a love for good doctrine. Notice that God says it was good that they had rejected false teaching. It would be easy to read this letter, his assessment, and conclude that they were enamored with all the fine points of doctrine, but didn't have any love in their hearts. They were self-righteous, holy know-it-alls. And God condemns them, saying they should care less about doctrine and more about love. But in fact, God does not say that they should care less about doctrine. God does not rebuke them for their zeal for right doctrine. He commends them for it. And we can't turn negative where Scripture is positive. Now, I know for some of you, you may tend to nod off when we start talking about biblical doctrine. It sounds like a transcendent thing that may be reserved for a select few, you know, the, the nerdy sort over there. You can call it something else if you want. If you, if, if you don't like the word doctrine, 
Simply call it the teaching of Jesus or the teaching of the Bible. You can dispense with the word, but you can't dispense with the teaching. Love for the teaching of the Bible demonstrates a growing faith in God, the kind of faith that Jesus commends in the church at Ephesus. According to this passage, Jesus loves Bible doctrine, and so should you. Or, if you prefer to call it the teaching of Jesus, you can call it that. You should love it. Second, uh, share a love for good doctrine. Don't simply cultivate it yourself, but share it with others. So for years, the, the leaders and the people in this church were studying the scriptures together, and they were passing along good doctrine to more people who were eager to learn it. So Paul, again, in writing to Timothy, had told Timothy to set up this pattern in the church at Ephesus where faithful men would be entrusted with the gospel so that they might pass it along to others who were able to teach others as well. So there was this pattern of passing along the gospel and good doctrine. Men and women, whether retired or in high school, just starting out your journey in the faith, we as a congregation, as a whole, should love sharing together in the teaching, the Bible, eager to learn the truths of Scripture from one another. To put it another way, uh, we should do this as individuals and as a church. So you can take this letter and evaluate yourself by it. Are you growing in knowledge of the gospel and understanding of Scripture? But also remember that this letter is for the church as a whole. So we also have to consider how are you contributing to the corporate health of Christ's covenant in this regard? You know, is our church more doctrinally healthy because of your conversations and contributions in our life together? So share a love for good doctrine. So as Jesus addresses Ephesus, he, he gives this positive assessment. I know that you have patiently endured in rejecting false teaching and holding fast to the gospel. Uh, so he has commended them, but now Jesus turns to this, this negative, our, our second point, that they have abandoned their first love. So look back again at verse 4. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So despite their diligence in rejecting false teaching, we see that they were inwardly imbalanced because while they were attentive to good doctrine, which is good, they were inattentive to love. So they passed all the tests of orthodoxy, but their doctrine had ceased to transform their hearts. And there's a certain tension here because the very boldness and courage that are often necessary to resist false teaching have to come at the same time with this warm and sensitive love toward God and others. This is an unnatural kind of blend that only comes from the gospel. Uh, maybe you've seen online uh, on YouTube or in chat rooms the, these people who take it as their job to denounce false teachers self-designated heresy hunters, and they often become very one-dimensional because they lack the full equipment of the gospel. The gospel does give us tenacity for the truth, but also gives us a disposition to love. So in speaking to Timothy about leading the church at Ephesus, Paul describes for him 
how the Christian should interact with false teachers and non-Christians. And here's the direction he gives to Timothy. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, but patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents, but with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What Ephesus needed was this blended temperament that can correct opponents, but with gentleness, born out of love, all with the hope that God might grant repentance to their opponents, leading to faith. They needed authenticity that blended doctrinal accuracy with this inner dynamic of love toward God and others. So the Bible is a book not only of normative uh, truth, but also of normative experience. It teaches us not only what we ought to believe, it also teaches us how we ought to feel. For instance, the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love certainly includes the mind and our behavior, our strength, but it goes even deeper than that to the very core of who we are, to our hearts. The heart is like the control center of our affections and aspirations. It drives all the things that we long for, and we're told in the greatest command, not only with your belief and tenacity, but also in your affections and aspirations, love the Lord your God. So the Bible shapes our thoughts, and by it we learn to bring our minds into line with reality, but the Bible also seeks to shape, shape our affections and aspirations. It, it wants to shape that part of us as well. And if we're shaped by it at the one level, but not at the other, then we are misshapen. You might think of this in terms of a mathematical formula. Authentic love equals doctrine plus affections. Authentic love equals doctrine plus affections. And if on the one side, the doctrine or the affections are false, then the love will most likely be false as well. It will be inauthentic. But where doctrine and affections are positively in line together with the gospel, then our love will also be positive. It will be authentic love. What about this first love? Let's try to clarify a bit by asking three questions. What is the first love? What is the first love? And then how do you know when you've lost it? And then third, how do you recover it? So first, what is the first love? So Jesus said to them, you have abandoned the love you had at first. So at one time in the past, you had a greater love than you do now. They aren't necessarily running on a completely empty tank, but they are on fumes. The original fullness of their love has diminished. If you are a Christian, you may be able to think back to some time in your past, right around your conversion and immediately after that, the kinds of spiritual experiences uh, that you had at first. You know, maybe your categories were ill-formed. Your understanding of the gospel wasn't all put together and your knowledge of God and his attributes wasn't fully developed. Um, the book of Acts actually tells us that Paul ran into some people in Ephesus who were converted, but they hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. Christians who didn't know about the Trinity. And 
They were zealous. They were passionate. What does Paul do? He instructs them further in the faith. There was a zeal in those early years for them. You know, for me, uh, this, this period was early in uh, high school and college. I remember in those years being excited to discover new things about the faith. I would stay up late at night reading, I hate to admit it, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and any books by John Piper that I could get my hands on. Uh, We had a group of friends that met together each week and um, trying to hold each other accountable for making progress in the faith, memorizing scripture and praying together. We'd go downtown Uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and share the gospel with university students. There was this time of zeal and excitement about growing in the faith. You can probably think of some of those early formative experiences in your faith as well. Maybe some of you are going through that period right now. It's like a budding romance, like the honeymoon phase, the the newborn period. And, And Jesus says that your first love should be your always love. And so, we have to ask, how do you know if you've lost it? We have to honestly assess the second question. How do you know if you've lost it? How do you assess that? Well, let me give you some warning signs. Warning sign number one is that you talk about your spiritual growth in the past tense. You talk about spiritual growth in the past tense. So when you think about transformative truth that you've learned or dominating sins that you've defeated or um, excitement about what the Spirit is doing in your heart, new understanding of the gospel, all of these things are not recent. They're things that God has done in your life, amazing things, but those were in prior years or decades. If you aren't learning new truths and taking new steps forward in following Jesus, then maybe, maybe your first love is long gone. Warning sign number two is that you have a hard time loving others. You have a hard time loving others. You're easily irritated with those around you or criticism of other people is just a steady part of your conversation. Or when you think of those who disagree with you politically or doctrinally, you feel nothing in your heart but disgust and disdain. John says in his first letter to the churches, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother, or else he is a liar. So you may be able to explain the Trinity with precision, but what does your family or those you live with, what do they think about you? Do they really believe that your love is wholeheartedly toward God? And do they see that love reflected in the way that you interact with them? If you have a hard time loving others, it may be your first love is long gone. Warning sign number three is that you can't remember the last time you shared the gospel with a non-Christian. You can't remember the last time you shared the gospel with a non-Christian. Um, Christians, we can tend to do evangelism in an echo chamber. We talk about doing evangelism, but we rarely do it. And that slowly morphs over time Uh, to the point that we love the fact that we're right about the gospel and that we know it, and yet we don't really care whether others know it as well. We have a zeal to be right, but not a zeal for Christ to be known. 
if you haven't talked about Jesus with a non-Christian lately, then maybe your first love is long gone. Warning sign number four is that your love for the world is stronger than your love for the Father. So again, John in his first letter to the church, churches says, uh, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God has given earthly gifts to be enjoyed. And Paul says that everything created by God is good and should be received with thanksgiving. The question isn't whether you enjoy earthly things, but whether you're enjoying them more than God. If your love for the world is stronger than your love for the Father, if your enjoyment of life is stronger than your enjoyment of God in life, then perhaps your first love is long gone. And finally, warning sign number five is that you are harboring some known sin. You are harboring some known sin. David's, King David's secret um, adulterous sin with Bathsheba was corrosive to his love for God. He thought that he could happily continue as God's king without honoring God's laws. But when David finally repented of that sin, he pleaded with God, renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. His sin had led to a loss of those things. A lot of people try to worship heartily on Sunday morning and yet harbor sin that corrodes love for God. If you are harboring sin, you know of it. Perhaps your first love is long gone. So, hearing those things, thinking about your own heart and life, if you have come up with an initial diagnosis that perhaps you have left your first love, don't ignore that thought. And Paul says to the church in uh, Galatia, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, meaning that what the Holy Spirit wants is the death of your sin. The Spirit has a vested interest. His interest revolves around revealing your sin to you so that you might put it to death. So, If you have this diagnosis in your mind, don't ignore that if that's what you've come up with. But don't go to self-condemnation over that either. Psalm 103 says that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Jesus was divine righteousness. We are dust. And God does not expect divinity out of humanity. He forgives our failings. He is sympathetic with our weaknesses. So don't respond with neglect, uh, but don't respond with despair either. Instead, ask this, this third question, how do I get it back? How do I get it back? If you've lost your first love, how do you recover it? You ready for another list of five? Here's a few ideas for you. First, repent of known sin and reconcile where needed. Repent of known sin and reconcile where needed. So going back to that, that sin we were just talking about, there, as we all know, there is a lot under the surface of life. And we all have areas in which we are walking in forms of hypocrisy where our belief is better than our conduct. But the question is, are you hiding or covering sin? Or are you actively dealing with it and repenting? 
the Christian is not marked by perfection, but by repentance. And, and then if your sin requires some relational healing as well, then deal with that. Attend to it immediately. Loving God grows along with love towards others. So deal with sin. Repent of it and reconcile where needed. Uh, second, after repenting of sin, ask God for growth in love. Ask God for growth in love. Follow the example of David in Psalm 51. Go back and read Psalm 51 where after repenting from sin, he pleads with God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Where does love for God come from? If you've lost it, how do you get it back? Where do you go to get love for God? Again, John in his first letter says, love is from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is from God, and if you want it, ask it from him. It is a gift that he gives. So repent of sin, and then ask God for growth and love. And then third, apply the gospel to yourself every day. Apply the gospel to yourself every day. A, a mature Christian is one who applies the truth of the gospel regularly. Uh, John Newton said that the word that is most descriptive of the mature Christian is contemplation. Contemplation. Because the mature Christian has, has tried to, uh, has, has tried to uh, maintain obedience over a long period of time and has learned the inevitability of failure and knows the insufficiency of self-effort to recover. And in light of that, knows the absolute necessity of forgiveness through the cross of Christ. And so the mature Christian is the one who has learned to apply that truth to his life every day. And the more our self-understanding is shaped by the forgiveness of the cross of Jesus, the more we will have love for God and others. So to have the first love is to be constantly aware of the forgiveness that has come to us through Jesus Christ. The less we are aware of this, the more likely it is we will not have that first love. So apply the gospel to your sin. And then fourth, uh, share the gospel with others. Remember, Jesus intended for the church in Ephesus to be a lampstand. So to remedy this loss of love, Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen and do the works you did at first. He calls them to renew their, effective, their, their status as, uh, as, as effective lampstands, shining the good news of the gospel of Jesus into that city. We read this verse last week from Matthew. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to God. Jesus is calling Ephesus to renew their status as a lampstand. If we want to recover our first love, then his divine word for us is share the gospel. And then fifth, do all of this as part of the church. Do all of this as part of the church. So again, this letter is to the church in Ephesus. It addresses the congregation as a whole. You all have left your first love. So we should examine ourselves individually, but it's also true just as you have individual flaws and virtues, so churches as a whole are marked by distinctive uh, flaws and virtues. And every Christian in the room, every member of Christ's covenant has to own the responsibility of the church as a whole. 
you know, no one, no one likes to be blamed for the sins of others. But the church is addressed as a whole. So we have to learn not only to think of ourselves individually, uh, but also to think of the health of our church. How are you contributing to the zealous love of this church? And it's the church's response to this assessment that Jesus addresses thirdly, the, the conditional part. Uh, the, this third piece, Jesus says, you must repent, listen, and overcome. So these three statements at the end of the letter, uh, beginning at the end of verse 5, Jesus says, if not, I will come to you. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We could list these three statements as three conditional statements. If you do not repent, then I will come and remove your lampstand. If you have an ear, then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. If you overcome, then I will grant for you to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And the force of these three conditionals together is that Jesus is calling the church to respond. And then he gives them incentive for doing so in the form of a warning and a promise. The warning on the one side and the promise on the other side are like guardrails helping us to move along and navigate the path of obedience. The warning is this. If you don't repent, you will be a completely ineffective lampstand. The lampstand will be removed from its place. It's non-functioning. The warning is that you may get to heaven and there will be lots of other people there, but no one who's there will be there because of you. You'll be an ineffective lampstand. Don't be ineffective. On the other side, the promise is this. The one who overcomes sin and lives according to this letter will never die, but will experience eternal life and forgiveness in the presence of God. And so in light of the warning and the promise, Jesus says, if you have ears, listen. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says. This letter is the Spirit speaking to you. Do not leave unchanged. Let it soak in. The letter calls for reflection that leads to transformation. What about us as a church? Where is Christ's covenant on these things? What would our scorecard say? I obviously don't speak with the authority of Jesus, but it seems to me that our church may be more like Ephesus than unlike them. We may be distinguished, in our own minds at least, for, for good doctrine, uh, but not so attentive to maintaining zealous love, especially in the form of being a lampstand, speaking of Jesus to others. You know, or maybe this is like the difference between reciting the Apostles' Creed and engaging in celebratory, passionate worship. You know, both are good, uh, but the one may come more naturally to us than the other. So we may be better at doctrine than at first love. If this is true, then it means that we individually and together must be looking to stir up our affections for Jesus. Wherever we're at on the spectrum, we want to grow in the authenticity of our love. 
the, the blending of doctrinal integrity with warmth and, and childlike love that has this zeal about it, especially zeal for making Christ known. This letter uh, was written to the church in Ephesus. Verse 1 says, These are the words to Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the golden lampstands. In other words, this letter as a whole points back to the vision of Jesus that John had in chapter 1, meaning that this letter is like personal application or application for the church on the basis of that vision of Jesus. Loving him always results from seeing Jesus as he truly is. When we see him as he is, we cannot help but love him. So let's end this morning just by giving thanks for the one who, as he says in chapter 1, died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is our Savior who has brought forgiveness for us. So we have to give thanks. We have to be skilled at giving thanks for this gospel of forgiveness. So take this moment of silence at the end of our service to to give thanks. And if you believe that you personally have some course correction to do, then let these quiet moments be for you a moment of decision. And then, uh, and then in just a moment, Ray will come and close us in prayer.